This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on iOS developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average iOS developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $2,000 signing bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the iFreaks link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash iFreaks. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 135 of the iFreaks show. This week on our panel, we have Andrew Madsen. Hello from Salt Lake City. James Zuber. Hello. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. I know this is an iOS show, but I am putting on a JavaScript conference and a freelancing conference January and February next year, so go check those out. I'm also doing an iOS conference in April. Call for Proposals is open. So if you go to allremoteconf.com and then just scroll down and click on iOS Remote Conf, I'm hoping to have iosremoteconf.com pointed to the right place by the time this goes live. But if that doesn't work, then just go check out all remote comps and uh, go check it out. I would love to see some proposals on that uh, conference. We're just getting started with putting it together. So lots of people who listen to this show have been asking for it. So I'm doing it. Uh, we also have a special guest this week, and that's Jeff Kelly. Hello from Detroit. Yay for a name I can pronounce. Do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, my name is Jeff Kelly. I've been making iOS apps pretty much since the beginning and working now at Detroit Labs in Detroit, Michigan, and finishing up the beta of the second edition of my book, Developing for Apple Watch. Very nice. I'm kind of a budding author myself, um, so I want to ask you before we get into Apple Watch real quick, what publishing platform are you using to put that out there? So it's being published through the Pragmatic Bookshelf. Oh, okay. Um, they've got a lot of cool books out there, and they have their own in-house publishing platform that's pretty amazing. Cool. So, uh, yeah, so you've been talking to Dave and Andy or somebody yep. that works for them? Yep, they have a staff of editors that that's my day-to-day contact. Very cool. But uh, their system's pretty nice. I just I check my code, not my code, but I check the book into uh, a repository, and it has continuous integration and a build server, and it goes. Sweet. Uh, well, we did bring you on today to talk about Apple Watch. Uh, do you want to really quickly... I'm pretty sure that everybody here is familiar with the Apple Watch and what it is and what it does, but can you just give us a quick overview of what the device is and what it's about? Sure. So it's kind of, you can think of it as just a companion for an iPhone right now. So you need to have an iPhone to install apps on it to get your data onto it. So you can kind of think of it as a second screen for the iPhone. So where it comes into writing apps for it, now with watchOS 2, that the apps can run natively on the on the watch, but you still have to embed it inside of an iPhone application. So I just kind of think of it as, you know, as the watch is a companion to the phone, the watch app is a companion to a phone app, um, just to, you know, get it that much closer to the user and have things, you know, at, the, at your wrist. So then how do people decide if they need a watch app? That's a good question. So... You know, you start out with your phone app and it has a certain set of features and not all of them make sense, right? So if you're making, I like to, to use the example of an RSS reader, you know, I use RSS readers. I love RSS readers, but I don't want to read my RSS feeds on a tiny watch screen. I don't think that's a good experience. I don't think really many people do. So you have to figure out like, what is it that I can do in the app 
on the order of seconds and not minutes. Anytime you have an app where you want to check on the status of something or make quick changes. So good example is an airline app. You know, I want to see what gate I'm on if my flight is delayed. That's the kind of thing I can achieve in a couple seconds. Just, you know, flick my wrist up, tap the icon and see the current status of something. Uh, so that kind of thing where you, you have timely information uh, that can be accessed quickly, that's the kind of thing that you want to put in a watch app or quick interactions like, you know, sending uh, an emoticon to somebody, not really long form text or archiving something and saying, yes, I saw that. A good example is the deliveries app. I use that all the time, especially this time of year for Christmas shopping. I can see on my wrist the, you know, which packages have been delivered to my house. So it seems like some of the notification stuff that would, would be a good candidate for the watch, but I know that Apple Watch integrates notifications from your phone to your watch, and you can decide which ones you want to see on the watch. Yep. So should you be encouraging your users to just enable the notifications on the watch, or do you want to actually push some kind of thing to an Apple Watch app that gives them a specialized kind of notification? Yeah, so it depends on you know what the type of notification is. Uh, if you can encapsulate the entirety of the interaction in two or three buttons uh, with small labels, so you know mark is unread or archive. If that's all you're doing uh, with a notification, then you can probably just get by with your uh, phone app sending a notification. But if you want to have any kind of custom UI with that notification, maybe there's a picture attached to it, or you want to have more than just the standard layout of buttons that's when you're going to want to actually make your own app. So in the example of deliveries, when I see that a package is delivered, I can tap on it and see an actual map of where that delivery happened. Uh, so things like that, features where you want to give more information to the user on their wrist, that's when the actual native watch app comes in handy. So let's talk a little bit about the, the simpler case. How do you wire up a notification from your app? So you've got an iPhone app, but you're not creating mm -hmm. a watch app. How much control do yeah. you have over the notifications that come out just from your app without dealing with the whole process of setting up a watch app? Basically none. So all the user, the, all the control or rather is given to the user. Um, so when you send a notification to the phone, assuming that the user has enabled it, all notifications go to the watch uh, when your phone is locked and the display is off and when your watch is unlocked. So if you use any of the notification actions in iOS, those same actions will get shown on the watch notification as buttons. So a lot of apps do this where you can give uh, a couple of actions with the notification um, and then the user can just on the iPhone screen, you know, kind of swipe to take an action from the lock screen. Those same actions will show up on the watch. Okay. So these are the built-in actions that you would do with yep. any notification to your app, but they are displayed on the watch. Yeah. And including now uh, you can reply with text. And that will also work on the watch uh, with dictation. So it seems like a lot of these interactions are pretty simple, mainly mm -hmm. because I guess you don't have a keyboard and you don't have the screen space to put one on the screen. So what, what ways can you interact with an Apple Watch? So aside from poking around on the screen and using the digital crown to kind of scroll up and down or select items from a list in a picker, some of the coolest interactions come from the sensors on the watch. Not so much the accelerometer. I mean, you can use the accelerometer. I made a little sample app that moves a ball around the screen, you know, with gravity, with the accelerometer. But really, it comes into its own with the health sensors and the heart rate monitor. So, you know, one really cool way to interact with the watch is just to wear it while you work out. And that kind of experience is pretty much what it's tailored to. So 
if the first time you write an app and you see like your calorie burn live on the screen, uh, that's pretty cool. Seems like there's sort of three ways you can deliver. I don't know how to put this, but sort of three experiences you can give people on the watch. There are notifications that you've already talked about a little bit. Mm-hmm. And then, and then there are glances, which are kind of, you know, not, not a full app, but they're, they're still quick to get to, but you can do more with them than a notification. And then of course there are actual apps. And mm-hmm. on my own watch, I find myself using things in, in about that order. Most, mostly notifications are sort of the big thing. And then I use glances a fair amount. And it's actually sort of rare that I go to the home screen and, and launch an app. I wonder if that's true of most people, and it also makes me wonder how that might inform deciding how you're going to design things for users. It's definitely true for me as well. So I don't really use glances a whole ton, but the primary like thing that I do on my watch is definitely see and respond to notifications, lots of Twitter notifications, things like that. Also, there's complications. So I haven't really talked about that yet. Basically, little widgets that you can add to the watch face, and those I use several times of an hour or if not a minute whether it's just looking at the weather or my activity rings or at my you know my calendar on my watch right now so when i lift my wrist it says recording ifreaks that is invaluable and it's kind of you know for an app to to make a good complication and get on someone's watch face is you know i think kind of a, a competitive landscape where you want to be a thing that your user wants to look at every time they lift they lift their wrist so what are some examples of useful complications other than you know, the temperature, which I use all the time? Yeah, so for that, I'm using Dark Sky, which uh, is like the weather app, but also gives you uh, notifications for upcoming rain. I'm using Pedometer Plus Plus by David Smith to track my steps throughout the day. That one's pretty cool because it kind of automatically syncs up the watch steps and your phone steps. I mentioned your calendar in there. Um, and there were a lot of cool demos at WWDC with things like you know home automation, alarms. I use timers a lot with my watch, especially as kind of a parenting aid. So being able to, to set a timer saying, okay, well, we'll play at the park for five more minutes and just kind of look at the watch and see in real time that timer, that's extremely useful. What's the process like for creating a complication? So the API can get kind of complicated. No, no pun intended. But <laughs> you know, it's the most confusing word ever. Yeah, all the product no, owners hate it. Why do we call it complication? Well, it's it's this old watchmaking term, you know, for a thing on a watch face that's not the time. So you might have an actual watch that does like I don't know diving distance or something like that, uh, and they kept it for the Apple Watch. I don't know if that was the best idea because it definitely, like when you're talking to it, you, you, know, you tell your project manager, okay, next up, we have to add some complications to the app. They get nervous. So I kind of like the word widget a little bit better. People know what a widget is. But to set one up, you basically, you create what's called a, a complication data source. You set up this complication data source and the system will call you back uh, at certain times and say, you know, it's time to update. And you only have so much of a power budget throughout the day. So uh, you have to be very quickly get the data and give it to the system. And you do that by kind of picking one of the built-in complication templates, feeding your data into it, and then giving it to the system. And if your data, you know, is different over time, you can give the system a timeline of entries. So here's my data now. Here's my data in five minutes. Here's my data in an hour. And as time progresses the system will automatically transition. So you don't have to write the code to change your calendar complication from one event to the next. You just tell the system, here's this event, here's this event. And it's smart enough to tell you, 
when you lift your wrist, what the current event is. And that's also how the time travel feature works. So as a user moves the digital crown up and down, it'll go into the future and into the past. And if you have everything set up in a timeline, you don't have to do anything special to get that to work. It will just look at your calendar or whatever the app is and automatically show the user the relevant information for that time period. So how much control do you have over how the complication looks? Is it limited to text? Can we do images, graphics, moving? So it depends on the template that you choose. Um, you know, Some of them are like two lines of text. Some of them are one line of text. Some of them are an image in text. Some of them are just an image. So you have that combination of things to choose from. Uh, there's also progress rings that fill up along the outside with either an image or text. Aside from that, you can also choose tint colors. Not every watch face will honor those. So I typically keep mine at a specific color, but you can also, instead of choosing a color for your watch face, you can choose multicolor. And then whatever color the developer has chosen will be used as the tint color. To me, it looks kind of, I don't know, bad, for lack of a better term, to have all kinds of different colors. I use the modular watch face, so I'll set it to a specific color, but... If you have like a, a brand color, uh, you can definitely set that up. It also depends on which uh, watch face your user is selected. So modular has the biggest range of templates, but if they're using you know one of the other uh, watch faces without so many things like utility, you're really limited to lines of text or like an image in the corner. You don't have a whole ton of room for your complication. Okay, so if you create an image complication and they're using a, a face that doesn't support it, it's just not going to be available to pick for that. Yeah, so either it'll be unavailable or uh, it'll be just in one of the corners, pretty small. If you kind of think of like a hierarchy of where these templates are, so every watch face has a set of, you know, for lack of a better term, sockets that you could put a complication into. And the templates available to you depend on the size of that socket. So the small ones are in the corner uh, that pretty much all of them support. The modular has the big one in the center. Uh, utility has one long one in the bottom, and so on and so forth. So you tell the system, here are all of the types of complications I support, and then it will, for all those types, you'll be in the list of apps the user can choose from. Uh, and then when they choose your complication, uh, the system will start asking you for data. Oh, very cool. So with Watch 2.0, there are a lot of changes to how people are building their apps Mm -hmm. can, you, can you walk us through like what the difference is between the watch extension and the watch app? It causes a lot of confusion for, for developers. Yeah, so the watchOS 1 came out uh, with WatchKit, and the way that watch apps worked was that there was a WatchKit extension uh, in your iPhone app that would run on the phone, and then uh, on the watch face, you'd see all of your UI elements, and interaction would go back and forth between the phone and the watch, uh, all over Bluetooth. Um, so as you can imagine, uh, watchOS 1 was not too responsive. They tried to do things to help it out, but at the end of the day, Bluetooth is only so fast. Um, so the you know original watch apps had a reputation for being pretty slow, and it was pretty deserved. So with watchOS 2, you still have that same watch kit extension, but now when you install a watch app, that extension is copied to the watch, and the code actually runs on the watch processor. So it's not as fast as your phone uh, to process, but you know the communication with the UI layer is pretty instantaneous as opposed to going over Bluetooth. You can still communicate with the phone if you need to, but for many apps, you don't. And so now you've got this tiny little device running your code, 
and there's still a layer of separation between the watch app and the watch kit extension. But now that barrier is just on the same device. So for things like copying an image, whereas before you would set an image on your UI and then wait for that image to copy over before it's displayed, you know, now it's the same device, so it'll display immediately. But the nice thing about that is that it's kind of, it forces you to adopt the MVC paradigm. You can't have views that know too much about your models or do too much with your models because you don't really have direct access to the views and you can't read data back off of them. So I can set the text on a label, but I can't read the text from a label. So that prohibits me from doing bad programming things like performing an action based on the text of a label as opposed to some internal state that I should be keeping track of. So where would the, the model in an MVC live? Is that in the extension or is it in the app? Yes. Okay. Yep. So your model and your controller classes are all going to live in the WatchKit extension. And then the view would be in the Watch app. And that's also where your storyboard lives. So it's kind of interesting. All of your interface controller uh, subclasses, that's kind of the replacement for a view controller. All those classes are in the WatchKit extension. But the storyboard, which is where all the outlets are set, is in the Watch app. So they're in entirely different bundles. Now, if you want to share code between the two areas, is that is that possible? Yeah, absolutely. So you can you can make a shared framework. You can make um, so we have a, a framework for the app I'm working on now that compiles for both iOS and WatchOS. It's a little tricky to set up because you can't have one target in Xcode that has multiple platforms. So you have to have one target for the framework for each platform, but you can share files in between them. There aren't really too many portability concerns because uh, it's all based off of iOS. So you can use all the same foundation classes and even parts of UIKit are in watchOS, just not things like UI view controller, for instance. So do you spend any effort keeping things compatible with the first version of the watch, or has that just gone away at this point? You can. Uh, we haven't. So we figured that most of the people who bought the Apple Watch early on are the early adopter type, and every Apple Watch can update to watchOS 2. So it's pretty safe to assume that everybody who is enthusiastic about the watch will be updating to watchOS 2 if they haven't already. So there's, I mean... The group of people that have an Apple Watch but haven't updated it, they probably are the same group of people that isn't really using their watch. So it doesn't really make sense to cater to their needs. They're probably never going to see your app. You basically need to maintain two apps at that point. You have your WatchKit 1 app and your WatchKit 2 app. And the system is smart enough to you know install the newest one. So I, I don't personally think it's worth the effort to keep a WatchOS 1 app active. And that said, there are some, some times where you might have a watchOS 1 app. Uh, Overcast is a good example where the paradigm worked much better for Overcast on a watchOS 1 app where all the data lives in the phone and it interacts you know, directly with the phone to play or stop a podcast. And there isn't an Overcast watchOS 2.0 app because that app would have to answer the question, what do I do when the phone isn't present, right? How can I be an independent app? So if your app is completely dependent on the phone, uh, it might make sense to just keep shipping a watchOS 1 app uh, until such a time as you can make one that truly is native and runs on its own. That makes sense. So in your book, you spend a lot of time talking about HealthKit. And when I'm using my watch app, a lot of the apps I'm using are the workout apps or I'm timing things and getting like heart rate information. How Can you walk us through how developing is for that? 
Sure. So if you've never used HealthKit before, you're going to learn to love types because HealthKit has a lot of different types. Um, you might have a quantity type to represent calories burned or a quantity type to represent distance that you've run. Um, it's a very kind of formalized API where everything is typed in such a way as you really know exactly what data you're putting in. So for instance, uh, one of the things that we do in the book uh, is go for a run. So we know the distances that you've run in a given time. We know the calories you've burned from the watch. Uh, and those are all saved the same way as samples. So kind of like a more scientific way of looking at it. And then you create a, a workout. So yeah, in this case, it's a workout with the activity type of running. You give it a start date, you give it an end date, and then you save it to what's called a health store. Uh, and the health store is kind of your interaction between your app and HealthKit. So once you've created this workout object and you've saved it, then you can associate samples with it. And this is how uh, you do things like uh, contribute to the activity rings on the watch is you save the calories burned with the workout so it knows you know, to put your app in the list. Um, and then once you've done that, uh, everything is all good to go. You're saved on the watch. It syncs with the phone. One of the interesting things is that all the health data lives on the phone and not all of it can come back to the watch. One of the first things I tried to do was write a complication that would look at uh, one of the new health kit categories in iOS 9 is water consumption. So I just wanted to make a complication to see like how much water have I consumed today compared to, let's say, a goal of, I don't know what they recommend, like eight cups a day. But it turns out a watch kit app can't directly access that health kit data. You have to go through the phone. But the phone can only access health kit data when it's unlocked. So it's a very secure API uh, as well. Um, you have to ask for permission before you do everything, and the user has to approve down to the individual level. So a user could approve that your app can read and write calorie data, but can't write diet data. So it's a very fine-grained set of permissions as well. Not just, you know, with like the microphone on iOS, it's like a yes or no. Do I have permission to use the microphone? But with HealthKit, it's much more fine-grained than that. Now, with this app we're talking about, you would input diet information from, from the watch? Or is that just part of the whole system that would be done through the phone? Uh, yeah, so you can input pretty much you know, from anything. So uh, you can add data to HealthKit from the watch, even at times when you can't read it, which is kind of interesting. So if you're tracking heart rate, trying to make your own running app, does it need to be running in the foreground? Is it, or is it still hop rates? You still get readings in the background? Yeah, so one of the cool things you can do is you can start a workout session. Um, and this is kind of like a, it's a way to keep your app running, even though you're not necessarily in the foreground. Um, so not only can you be running on the watch, but you can be running on the watch in the background. Uh, and then you set up what's called uh, a query. So uh, in my code, I have a, a query that runs that's continually getting new samples of the user's heart rate. So as those samples build up, HealthKit will call into your app and execute uh, a handler that you give to this query. It doesn't necessarily run it every single time a new sample comes in. So it will call you with maybe four or five samples at a time. But you do have the ability to keep running in the background, get these samples, you know, as is appropriate for power consumption, and then process them. And then when you have an active uh, workout session, you'll notice like there's a little 
running person at the top of the device to indicate that there's a workout going on. Um, and also the heart rate monitor will be active. Uh, so you'll be getting a lot more heart rate samples than the watch collects at resting time. So you have this workout session, you start it, you start collecting data, you save all of your data to a workout, and then you can end the workout session and then update the workout with all the data you've collected. But it's kind of a laborious process. It's very verbose. Um, your class is going to be pretty long dealing with health kit stuff. Uh, you have to spell everything out. But once you do it and once you get all the pieces together, it works really well. All the issues I've had so far with HealthKit are just along the lines of, I wish I could do this, but it's not allowed. I haven't really seen any just straight up bugs with it yet. What new things were released with uh, Watch 2.1? That just came out, right? Yeah, so that was kind of a surprise. We didn't really get any betas of it or anything. And one of the, the newer things is you can have right to left languages. Um, this was interesting to me because none of the watchOS uh, APIs at the time supported that. So now there's some new APIs that will cover you know, how to handle using a right-to-left language. Uh, so for a specific control, it might make sense if the example they give is uh, fast-forward and reverse. Sometimes it makes sense for your control to just follow the language of the text, and sometimes it doesn't. And so you can give that as part of your UI settings uh, to the device, which will automatically do the right thing for a right-to-left language. I'm really happy that this came out now because I haven't yet written the chapter on localization. And so I get to start with that. And if I had started already, then I'd be going back and doing a lot of revision. And localization is, is one of the challenging issues with the watch because of just a limited amount of space. So, you know, the old joke is that German is twice as long as the U.S. when it comes to laying out buttons and labels, but it's true. And on a, a small device like the 38 millimeter watch, you've really got to be careful that your localized strings all work and that you can split things into multiple lines if you need to. You can have one word that wraps three times. <laughs> I mean, you might with some of these words. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's one of the things I've noticed is that even when displaying an alert, uh, watch OS is very aggressive about hyphenation, uh, just to get as many words on screen as, as possible. But it's a challenge for such a small device to to fit things. That's why we have emojis, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, and then you know you they have there are text settings. So you have accessibility settings on the watch, where I can go in and and increase the text size to the maximum. So combine that with a super long translated word, uh, and you've got a challenge for any designer. And what do you have to do to to make sure your app works well? On because there are two sizes of watch, right? The thirty eight millimeter and the forty two millimeter, and yeah. they actually have different screen resolutions, if I remember right. Yep. So, do you have to go out of your way to make sure things work well on both sizes? It's interesting, right? Because the the difference in screen sizes is four millimeters, and like on any other device, that would not be a huge difference. But because it's you know a larger proportion of the screen, it does make sense to to have different UIs. So, most of the time, one UI will work great for both. But the way that you get around it is you can, uh, for instance, for an image, you can specify different images for the different screen sizes. So have a larger one for the 42 millimeter. Uh, you can have different font sizes, but also when you're laying things out, you can have an offset for a specific screen size. It's kind of like size classes on iOS, only there's just two to choose from. So if I have a label, I can come into Xcode and uh, for its alignment, it can be let's say, aligned to the bottom on the 38 millimeter, but to, to the center on the 42. So pretty much any setting that you would do on the, on the UI in the storyboard, you can specify 
either an alternate value for one of the screens or an adjustment to a value for one of the screens. And then in Xcode, if you have a certain screen selected in your storyboard, there's a preview in the assistant editor where you can see both watch faces or watch sizes uh, side by side to make sure that it's going to look good on both. All right. So they've given given you tools to make that not such a painful yes. thing. And I know from there what little... things uh, in the system, like displaying alert controller or things like that, where you're invoking system UI, where the system will just take care of taking that text and wrapping it as it's appropriate. But so for those situations, you should always test on the smaller device to make sure you don't cut anything off you don't want to. Is there, so a lot of, a lot of iOS developers end up with kind of a collection of devices to test on because for whatever reason, you don't want to just rely on the simulator. Uh, I wonder, I mean, does it, does it actually make any sense to have more than one watch if you're really serious about this? I hope not because I, mean, I don't want to buy one. <laughs> I would say if you are one developer uh, and you're making a watch app, you can get by with just one physical device. The UI is going to be the same from the simulator to the actual watch. So the reason you want to have you know an actual physical device to test on is more for performance, um, that kind of thing. And the two watch sizes are pretty close, if not the same, for all the performance specs. So I wouldn't worry about getting a second watch just to test apps on. One thing we did notice here, though, was that we had uh, an image with a gradient and the Apple Watch Sport versus just the Apple Watch with the stainless steel, uh, they have different screens slightly. The Sport has a glass cover, whereas the steel one has a sapphire cover. And I think there might even be different display technology slightly because we noticed that this same image would look just slightly different on the two watches, enough that it was the kind of thing where the client would tell us, this doesn't look right. And we'd be like, what are you talking about? It looks great. But... We were looking at it on my watch, and they had a different model of watch. So I still don't think it's enough of a difference to buy a second watch. But if you have a friend who has a second watch with a different size or a different screen, it might make sense to throw them a test flight invite. Uh, just to, you know, have them run it on the watch and make sure everything is good. I, I have seen I have seen developers wear two watches at once because they're one, <laughs> using one for testing. I think Steve Wozniak wears like like five or six all the time. Yeah, I mean, I I definitely, you know, when we got the test device, I had one on each wrist just for a little while just to play with it. Do you get twice you know. as much time that way? You do, it turns out. Yeah, and you can go forward and backward in time at the same time. You're Sweet. a workout machine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, double the calories for free. Yep. It seems like when, uh, when WatchKit 1 first came out, one of the big problems was that everything was super, super slow. I mean, just yes. launching an app was slow, tapping a button in an app was slow, and you just stared at that spinner. I wonder how... Well, I think that's gotten somewhat better with watchOS too, but I also wonder how as an app developer you can take steps to minimize those delays because for me as a user, they're sort of really the most frustrating part of the, the watch and they sometimes make me f feel like it's not even worth using. Oh, absolutely. Um, I'd say, so for that, there's nothing you can do about the spinner that shows up the first time your app is launched. There's just some work that the watch is doing. I'm not sure exactly what it's doing, but the first time an app is launched, it's just going to take longer. Once it is launched, I think one of the key things is to always be doing something. So whether that's showing some kind of image to say that you're loading or you're having something bouncing back and forth, you don't want your user just looking at an empty screen. So even if it is taking a while to do something, if you have an animation going, that can give the illusion of it being more responsive than it is. And then typical things from iOS still apply. So if you're drilling down 
into a hierarchy of data. You don't want the user to tap on something and then have to wait for, let's say, a network request to finish before you go to the next screen. You want to go to the next screen now, start the network request immediately, and update that screen when the new data comes in. So the more things like that you can do, the more responsive your app will feel. And one of the things you can do with your iOS app, there's a, a framework on each OS, so on watchOS and on iOS, called Watch Connectivity. And when you have a watch app, it's installed and you're paired, you can transfer data from one side to the other. So one useful technique is anytime your phone app loads data, uh, even in the background, you have what's called an application context. So you can save a dictionary of data to the watch even while your app isn't running. So instead of your watch app relying on the network every time, you can send it little pieces of updates in the background as you get them on iOS, and then they're already there, ready to go on the watch, so the user doesn't have to wait for them. What One thing that I'm wondering about now is, let's say that I have an existing iOS app and I decide that I have something that I want to put on the watch. Is there a good starting place for that? And are there good maybe courses? Obviously, there's your book. But are there other resources that give people a good uh, introduction to this? Yeah, I mean, so there's there's my book. There's a few other books as well on tutorial sites. I would say some of the best uh, materials for beginners are WWDC videos. I mean, obviously, it depends what type of learning is best for you. I've always found videos to be extremely helpful. You know, even the when I was first learning iOS, one of the first things I did was bought uh, a video course. So there's a lot of great stuff in WWDC videos from this year, especially on the design side. So if you're going to be developing and designing an app at the same time, it's very useful to you know, see how to use animation in an app, see some of the design concepts behind watchOS. So you can start there, uh, maybe get a book or two, read through those, and then you know whatever suits your learning style best. For me, it's let's make a sample app and start poking around and see what we can do. Uh, for others, it might be more studying, you know, what they can read uh, in the documentation. And to get that sample app, is it a separate app in Xcode or is it part of your iOS app in Xcode? So if it's going to be a part of that app, it would be a different target in that uh, same Xcode project. So you have your iOS target and then you actually need two more targets. You need one for the watch app and one for the watch kit extension. Xcode will make all that for you. So if you just, you know, do new target, in Xcode, one of the options on the left is watchOS application, and that will do everything you need to do to get set up. One of the cool things about there being two more targets is if you're not using a wildcard app ID for your provisioning, you need to have two more provisioning profiles for each app. And we all love provisioning profiles. Yay, provisioning profiles. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, it's one of those things we have to deal with. Hopefully, you know, if you're using something like Fastlane, I just listened to that episode, that'll kind of help. But provisioning is what provisioning is. So when Watch OS 2.0 came out, the development for it, at least the initial, was pretty painful. Anyone I know that did a Watch 2.0 app and mm-hmm. when it got released, it was pretty painful. Has, it got, has that gotten better with new Xcode um, releases? <laughs> it's gotten better a little bit. So there are definitely some pain points. You know, you can sit there and wait and wait for... So first, Xcode has to copy the iPhone app to your phone. Uh, and then your phone copies the watch bundle to the watch. 
And then once that's copied, now you can finally start a debug session and launch the app. And at that point, Problem. your uh, phone has, or your watch has gone to sleep or turned off right. the display. You need to start over. <laughs> yep. Yep. So it can definitely be frustrating when you have to just sit there and wait, especially if you're using Swift uh, at all, because not only do you need to copy all of the Swift libraries to your iOS app, but also to your watchOS app. So that's like 30 to 50 megs of overhead right there just because you're using Swift. So once that's all copied, then sometimes Xcode will just fail to launch the app. It'll say finished running on device and you look at your device and it's still at the watch face and nothing happened and it's installed, but you really wanted to launch it in the debugger. And that can be frustrating. One of the tricks I've learned is to lock your phone, run it in Xcode. It'll copy everything over, but then Xcode will prompt you to unlock your phone to continue debugging. And when you do that, at that point, everything is copied and ready to go. So it's a lot faster to start. And I've had a lot better success locking my phone every time. Aha. That was the tip I needed. Yeah, it's, I mean, even on the simulator, sometimes the watch app will just fail to install. So, you know, when you're in a, a pretty intense debugging phase, I had developed a reflex of going to the devices menu in Xcode, deleting the simulator device entirely, and then just creating a new one with the watch device on it just to have a more reliable first launch of the app as opposed to waiting for it to install and having a fail. But thankfully, things have been getting better with every Xcode release. It's nowhere near as slow as it used to be. So on that front, things are looking up. That's good. So one other thing I had trouble debugging with on the watch app I was working on was troubling the communication between the watch and the actual phone, trying to see that things are getting created and debugging both sides of that. Do you have, a, do you have any tricks for that? Yeah, um, it is actually possible in Xcode to attach the debugger to both the watch portion and the phone portion. So what you can do is you can start the WatchKit app, and then in Xcode, you select Debug and then Attach to Process, and you'll see the iPhone process there as well. And you can have two debuggers going at once, uh, which is really useful for just adding additional logging to all the process or setting breakpoints in both uh, apps. If you're trying to debug on the phone, uh, one thing you might know, or on the, on the device, rather, is you might notice that you send something to the watch, or you send something to the phone, and it gets batched, and it's not sent immediately. One of the things you can do to help that process along is to perform some action that is sent immediately. Uh, one of the easiest is to go to the watch app on your phone and just adjust the layout of your app icons, uh, and that'll get sent over immediately. And also, because the radios get kicked on, it'll do all that synchronization of data. So if you're using the watch connectivity WC session, to synchronize data back and forth, whether it's your application context or just one-off user info dictionaries, because those aren't sent immediately, that can kind of trigger them to be sent now. And then you'll see the effect on the other side. There's another API in Watch Connectivity, which is send message with a reply handler. And that is more instantaneous. So that will get sent if it can immediately. On the other hand, that will also fail if the devices can't reach each other. So if it's something where you don't care how long it takes to get there, doing some of the other methods to share data might make more sense. But from the watch to the phone, that's always assumed to work if the phone is present. So it'll wake up your app in the background if it needs to. So from the watch to the phone, you can use the send message API to get a more or less immediate response from the phone. And that API actually replaces 
how all communication with the iOS app would work in watchOS 1. Uh, there was a, an open parent application call where you could open the iOS app with a dictionary and get a dictionary in response. And that's how send message works. They just moved that away from it was on uh, the interface controller at first, and it didn't really make sense. Yeah, I, I like the uh, the approach too, just because in my experience, most of the problems that I run into are at the edges of the different applications. And so mm-hmm. where, for in this instance, the watch has to talk to the phone, the phone has to talk to the watch, the right stuff gets sent to the right place and does the right thing is probably where I'm more likely to have the problem as opposed to where everything's in the same code base and I can just run some tests against it, even if it's some kind of end-to-end interaction test and just know that it did the right thing in the first place. Right. And uh, so you just mentioned testing. One of the oh, no, I opened a can of worms. Oh, you did. Well, so it's, you know, one of the things to make this frustrating is that uh, you can't really unit test or UI test any watchOS app. You can have shared code that is unit tested. So if you have a library shared between the two, that library can have unit tests. But it's impossible without a storyboard to create any interface objects on watchOS. So you can't create an interface controller out of scratch. You have to create it from a storyboard. Uh, so until such a time as Apple adds a way to have a test target for watchOS, there's just a lot of code that you're not going to be able to test effectively. And so that can be frustrating in these situations where you're relying on a device to communicate with another device over Bluetooth to test your code, and you just wish that you could make some kind of more advanced test harness to get everything squared away. It might be possible to really hack something together, but the Xcode tools as they are don't currently have a lot of support for watchOS. It would also be nice to have UI testing support that's gotten better for iOS in recent days. Hopefully that comes to the watch as well. But it's kind of disconcerting to see that the uh, tvOS did get UI testing support and has unit testing support. I think because it's closer to iOS than watchOS is, but still nothing on watchOS. TV gets all the cool stuff. Ah, tell me about it. I know, right? I want to be on TV. <laughs> what are the gotchas that you run into when you start writing for watchOS that you just don't uh, see when you're writing iOS apps? One of the things that really hit me was um, the thing I mentioned before with HealthKit, where you can't access some of the data from the watch. Um, and that's just kind of a, like a, a recurring theme where you'll try to do something realize you have to use the phone for some feature, uh, and then suddenly you're writing code to bridge data back and forth between the two. So you know, the watch is pretty limited in the feature set in terms of backgrounding. You know, If you don't touch the display for about seven seconds, it turns off, and there's nothing you can do about that. So you really don't have a lot of time for processing. And anything you do need for longer processing... Uh, my go-to example here is mining Bitcoin. Um, that should really happen on the phone, not the watch. And so it could be an exercise in figuring out, like, how far can I get before I need to drop into the phone? Um, luckily, there are pretty good APIs around talking to the phone and sharing data back and forth, which I think is essential to writing, you know, the kinds of apps that we need to write. Nice. Are there any memory constraints or performance constraints that we haven't talked about that you need to be aware of with the watch? Yeah, it is a bit like going back to the original few iPhones where memory is pretty constrained, performance is pretty slow. With modern conveniences like Arc, you know, it's it's not quite as bad as the original iPhone, but you definitely still need to test on device. So 
is not enough to do the simulator. The difference between the iPhone performance and the watch performance is kind of like the difference between the, uh, the simulator and the phone. All right. Well, uh, I think we've exhausted all of our brain power on this, so we'll go ahead and go to the picks. Uh, Jane, do you want to start us off with picks? Yeah, I've got a pick. I've got one pick today. So I was looking for some podcasts that weren't necessarily technical, you know, code-heavy podcasts, and some people that I, I play music with introduced me to the Song Exploder podcast, where they have musicians come on and deconstruct the songs, the different parts, how they were inspired, and they're pretty short. They're not, they're not, not super long, but... If you're interested in that type of thing, it's cool. Um, some pretty famous artists, U2's on there, Wilco, and more recent stuff. But if you like to, if you're interested in seeing how songs and music comes together, it's definitely worth listening to. So check out the Song Exploder podcast. All right, Andrew, what are your picks? I've got three picks today. Uh, my first one is, I hope I say her name right, but Erica Satan's blog. She's a longtime iOS developer uh, that has been quite involved with Swift since it came out and with the release of Swift as open source, she's just had a, a really um, good run of posts, including kind of these roundups of what's going on on the Swift evolution mailing list where there, where, you know, the community is discussing ch changes to Swift. She's actually the first person outside of Apple to have a proposal accepted for Swift, um, which is kind of cool. So her blog post is my first pick, or her blog is my first pick. My next pick, uh, again, regarding open source Swift, I've been working on a um, a rewrite of one of my open source libraries in Swift from Objective-C to Swift, and, and part of the reason I'm doing that is so I can add support for Linux to it. And um, if you're if you're doing Swift on Linux, of course you don't have Xcode, but uh, I, there's there's a guy that has figured out how to make a basically make a plugin for Atom, which is GitHub's text editor to um, integrate the Swift package manager and the Swift debugger. So this is kind of cool because it sort of gives you a, not, not a full IDE, but some something a little closer to a Swift IDE that'll run on Linux and probably even Windows. And then my last pick is, a, is an app that I started using a couple weeks ago called Authy, and it's a two-factor authentication app. And one of the reasons I really like it is they have a they have a good watch app. So when you're signing into a website that you have two two factor authentication set up on, which I have for a lot of a lot of places now, instead of having to pull out your phone, you can just fire up the app on your watch and see the code that you have to enter in. So it makes things a little smoother and it's kind of cool and they've done a good job with it. So those are my picks. Now Authy is the Twilio thing, right? It's it's uh, yeah, built it's and run by Twilio. Twilio. Yep, it's from Twilio. All right. I've got a couple of picks. Jane mentioned podcasts that he listened to that aren't necessarily technical. And there's a podcast I listened to last year that I was really hoping would come out with a season two and squee, they did. Uh, Serial is back. Um, they're talking about the, what's his name? Bo Bergdahl. Bergdahl. Yep. And uh, so they kind of get his version of the story in the first episode, which was really fascinating. And I'm hoping just to see how deep they get into it. But they got pretty deep on the last one with Adnan and that murder case. So I'm really curious to see how this goes and what they dig up and and how it all comes down, especially since now he is actually facing a court-martial for desertion and endangering fellow officers or fellow soldiers. So I'm also curious to see whether or not a podcast actually plays into an actual court case in this case. So anyway, uh, definitely a pick for that. 
And uh, that's about all I've got this week. Jeff, what are your picks? All right, I came prepared with three picks. So uh, the first is a game I've been playing, especially on Apple TV, called Badland. I have a three-year-old who's become obsessed with this game. It's basically uh, Flappy Bird meets World of Goo. So if you liked either of those games, I would check it out. And next is the aforementioned uh, Swift Evolution Melee List. So if you want to see kind of how the sausage is being made and things like Erica's uh, first proposal, that's where it's all happening. It's pretty high volume right now. I'm hoping it'll kind of calm down. As the language gets older and people get over the initial rush of, holy cow, Swift is open source, uh, it should be more manageable in terms of volume. Uh, But it's been really cool to see. And last is a local Detroit company called Rocket Fiber. So obviously very few people listening to this will be able to take advantage, but uh, they tout the world's fastest internet with 100 gigabit per second uh, speeds. So I'm coming to you now over a one gigabit line on them. It's just been amazing. So it's kind of a cool thing to have the world's fastest internet just across the street from us here. How much do they charge for their 100 gigabit service? So the 100 gigabit is one of those kinds of things where you have to kind of call and ask. There's no public price for it. Um, but they're doing like a one gig residential for, I think, 70 a month. Or so no, 10 gig. Oh, 10 gig. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. hundred. So the 100 gig is if you have to, if you have to ask, you can't afford it. Yeah. Well, you know, if you wanted to open up a new data center, <laughs> it's that kind of thing. I, I thought you sounded a whole lot more bandwidthy than the rest of us. Well, that's why. Yep. All right. Well, if people want to find out more about you, how to get the book, all of that stuff, lay it on us. Sure. So I'm pretty active on Twitter. My Twitter name uh, since eighth grade is my username has always been Slaunchaman. So the letter S, launch a man. And then you can also find me at jeffkelly.org. That's K-E-L-L-E-Y. I have two very hard to spell things for you. You can get the book at pragprog.com. It's kind of one of the first things on the page there. Um, And then Detroit Labs is just at detroitlabs.com. Super. Well, thanks for coming. It was a lot of fun to explore some of the capabilities and approaches to writing watch apps. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Thanks, Jeff. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.